Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Today, I'm joined by the president of a company called Working Nation. Jane Oates is with me today. Jane, welcome to Trending in Education. Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's fantastic to have you. I'm excited for this conversation. We always start by asking our guests for their origin story. I get the sense you know how to spin a yarn. <laughs> Can you share with us what got you to this point in your professional life? So I think the simple answer to what got me here is pure luck. Mm -hmm. But I started as a teacher, a ninth grade special ed teacher, both in the Boston Public Schools and the Philadelphia Public Schools. Went back to graduate school because I knew I didn't have enough tools in my toolbox. Became a reading specialist. So that kind of cemented me into teaching reading. I tried to get my kids into regular class out of that special ed class that I was just at the beginning of that inclusion movement mm. and mainstreaming kids. And I came to the attention of a researcher at Temple. So after 15 years in a classroom, she lured me to do research at a, a, the Temple University Research for Human Development and Education. Mm. And there I met, I saw what I didn't know. I got to see school districts all over the country, saw that Boston and Philadelphia, uh, while they were pretty similar, were really unlike many of the other districts, large and small, got to meet rural districts. I'm an urbanite. I've never lived in a rural area, really opened my eyes. My job at Temple was to write grants. So I had a lot of federal grants at the center at the time brought me to the attention of Senator Edward Kennedy, mm. who offered me a job to come down and write legislation on the health committee, mm. which I did for 10 years and loved every second of it, just as I had loved every second of teaching and yep. working at the center. Then was the commissioner of higher ed after that in New Jersey for John Corzine, uh, which was a wonderful experience. And you'll hear me use a lot of my learnings in our discussion today, I'm sure. And then completely odd route was the assistant secretary of labor for president obama i did employment and training there so i mean from there i come to working nation i right. did a little stint in the for-profit sector with the university of phoenix i ran corporate social responsibility for them and then working nation so as you can see i'm not only i have a lot of miles but uh, really interesting things that were not in a planned path yeah but always close to education and then the connection to labor. It is a natural connection, but many of us maybe forget to make it. Can you catch us up a bit on what Working Nation is and, and what the, the mission is there? I'm the luckiest person in the world because Working Nation is the confluence of all my worlds. It's a nonprofit media entity founded by a philanthropist, Art Bilger, who decided that he wanted to tell the stories of solutions in the transitions between and among various forms of education and various job and career titles. Hmm. So we do videos, we do a podcast, we do uh, journalism, both original every day and curated stories on our website from everybody else who's talking about this. And we do live events, although that part has been really slowed down during COVID. I did see Working Nation had a setup at South by Southwest EDU, which I, I did attend. And I also saw you do state of state of the the union, state of the worlds every year to do a quick progress report on, on how things are trending. That is something that we're always looking for. And then you've looked in particular at the role of higher ed and going skills-based and how there are skills gaps emerging that are going to be a real problem 
for the U.S. workforce, really the global workforce in reality, focusing mainly on the U.S. Can you catch us up a little bit on where we are today in terms of skill development and some of the things that Working Nation is focusing on? Sure. You mentioned conferences. We do a series called Overheard there. We have the best content team, small but mighty. And we do those interviews at conferences like South by Southwest EDU, like ASU GSV. We'll be at JFF in June. And we do that to democratize the great conversations that are going on there. Everybody can't afford to go to a conference, either with time or money. Mm -hmm. And so, especially many teachers and faculty members who just can't afford to not be in their class. So that's the really fun part of that. So how are we doing? Look, there's no question that we are, we still have the best higher ed system in the world, period. And how do I know that? Because foreign students from all over the world will do anything to come here to study. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we don't have to continuously improve. It doesn't mean that we don't have to look for new ways to reach more people. That access question is still really important. But I think the conversation right now, and I know you've been having it with lots of your guests recently on the podcast, is how do we continue to make higher ed relevant? When you pay Seventy to a hundred thousand dollars a year for a four-year college degree. There are some colleges that you pay that amount, and the most elite colleges have these great aid programs because of the money that they have for financial aid. You know that you're paying lots of money and lots of time. Those elite colleges give you a network. You're buying a network. You know if you go to elite college A. Sometime in the next 20 years, you're going to know a CEO or the son or daughter of a CEO. And that's fine, except that all the other colleges are competing and keeping up with their price tag without the financial aid packages. So you're going to a college that's not an elite college. I won't give it, I won't give it an adjective, but you're going to a college that's not very elite. And yet they're still, you know, mission creeping. They're still trying to offer all these master's degrees and all these EDDs and PhDs, and they're spending a ton of money but they're never going to be research ones. Right. Research ones should always be more expensive. You have the opportunity when you go to a research one university to do cutting edge research, usually with incredible faculty, but also with corporations. You don't get that at these second and third tier colleges. And yet they're pricing themselves almost at the same level. And I think pricing way too many people especially the middle class out of college. You know, the poorest of the poor are going to get maximum Pell. They're going to get other scholarship aids. They're going to get great packages. Believe me, they deserve every cent of that. Nobody wants to be poor. But a working class family right now looks at that that sticker price and just says, I can't afford that. I'm not going to go $100,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The the term I've seen out there, I, I think it's Akil Bello at FairTest, was rather than selective, calling them rejective universities. They reject the most students, which is an interesting dynamic that that is a reality. You know, the majority of folks are not going to go to those highly selective universities. And then in addition to that cost that is a problem, there's also the risk that you start one of these programs and you don't finish, in which case you get all the debt and none of the credentials. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I know that's an area that Working Nation has a lot of research, a lot of focus on 
the problem of folks who some college, no degree and that versus other training formats. Yeah, look, just to put it in context, only about 25% of Americans have a college degree. We haven't moved that needle very much at all. Maybe we've shaken it up about who those Americans are. Mm -hmm. But the reality is today we have 40 million Americans with some college and no degree. So as you said, Mike, they have the debt but no benefit of the, you know, the pay that goes along with finishing a degree. Yeah. So we at Working Nation are really looking at some of the the innovative, non-traditional ways that people are getting the skills they need without that degree. So you look at what corporations are doing, whether it's IBM, whether it's, you know, somebody like Grow with Google, who, you know, now has seven certifications that you can get in six months or less with a partnership with Coursera. Yeah. We're following them. We we like them. We like all of them, but we're really trying to see if they would begin partnerships with more traditional universities. So you could get not only the certification, but you could also get the college credit that could, should go along with that. Not diluting what they're doing at colleges, but saying, if I learned this in a college, I would have gotten three credits or six credits or nine credits. That to me is the real promise of how higher ed can change. I mean, there's some cool things going on. I love dual enrollment, right? I love when high school kids can graduate from high school with a diploma and an associate's degree or credits towards an associate's degree. That's a great way to shave off the cost of college. Yeah. I also love what some innovative four-year institutions are doing in partnership with community colleges. They're basically saying, when somebody leaves after two years at my four-year state institution, can I go back and look at the credits they have and see how quickly they could get an associate's degree from our partner community college? That reverse engineering yeah. is really good for the individual. And we'll see, right? I mean, some of the colleges have been doing that for four or five years now, interrupted by COVID. But we'll see. that is that an incentive for somebody to say, I have my associates. Now I want to go back and finish my bachelor's. Right, right. Frequently things are characterized as either or when in reality they're more of a both and if, if you think about education and work workforce outcomes the idea of higher ed being completely independent of your future employment prospects perhaps that's so idealistic and you can still be idealistic about higher education and think about outcomes your average earnings coming out of the university or the fact that there are new programs emerging income uh, share agreements is one of them, which I always gravitate towards indentured servitude because it's got this IS in it. But there are new models emerging around where you can get a guaranteed job or, or get more of a, an inside track on that first good job, which is so critical to your future life prospects and all those good things. Can you expand a, a little bit on income share agreements and some of the models that are out there? Yeah, look, at the very basic level, income share agreements, modified lending that's going on with some states like Vermont is playing with that right now, just means that you're sharing the risk. In the traditional model, the only person who bore a risk was the student. You know, you go to college, you don't get a job, uh-oh, something's wrong with you. Never going back to say, maybe I didn't have all the elements I needed in my education. Maybe I didn't have the career or course guidance to take the right courses to give me those skills. So 
These agreements, Kaplan is a big one right now. Brandon Busted is doing a lot of stuff. Mitch Daniels, he pioneered this and he was right. We're in the middle of a project right now. It's led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, really looking at besides income share agreements, which are really good and really important and just done some studies to look at. JFF just did a study and saw that they weren't biased anyway to a, a specific gender or racial group, which was great to hear that it wasn't just white men going for them or white women, but it was really a mix. Just real quick, JFF is Jobs for the Future. I think you mentioned they have a conference coming up in June as well. That's right, Horizons. This project is really looking at how do traditional loans change a little bit so that when an entity gives you a loan, do they bear some risk too, as well as the institution? I think it's really promising. Mm -hmm. And I think that concept, not the fear of that, but the concept has pushed a lot of people. I, I, you know, I live in the DC metro area and the Greater Washington Partnership has started something where they've brought 15 businesses, big businesses, you know, name recognizables that you would know, plus like local businesses, like the utility companies together to say, what's your biggest need? No surprise. They said digital skills. Yeah. So they joined with now 20 universities from Baltimore to Richmond, and they have embedded these digital skills that were brought forward by business and embedded those skills into courses that they already had, Mike. Mm -hmm. These universities didn't have to add one course. They just sequenced them so that students could get this credential. Now, they're not promised a job. And I really worry anybody who promises you a job is not telling the full truth. But they guarantee you an internship and an interview. Mm -hmm. And that's really something. When you're talking about a company like Lockheed Martin, or you're talking about a company like Dominion Utilities in Virginia, those are great. J.P. Morgan Chase, these are major companies that kids without a familial network, without parents who know somebody in that company, have really had a hard time, a struggle getting an internship and nowadays getting an interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then the other part of the, the private sector that's getting more press about getting involved in this is the big tech companies. You mentioned Google earlier, Amazon's been doing a lot of stuff, whether it's their AWS Academy or their partnerships with colleges and Coursera's. There's a lot of activity in that space. What's your take on that? Some of that is within higher ed. And then some of it is more direct building path pathways that are, are really skills-based for the job you'll need to succeed at a Google or uh, an Amazon. What's your perspective on, on those kinds of models? Look, I think Amazon, it, it started long ago. It started with Cisco Academies and nobody remembers where they are anymore. And then even Siemens did it with their their software programs. They gave colleges lots of money, millions of dollars to teach their software. Why? And it's the same reason Amazon's doing it. It's about building customer base. Right. When I go to a local area, I can say, you should buy Amazon Cloud because I know we have 1,500 people trained as Amazon Cloud technicians in your region. I know you'll get the support that you need if you buy our product. Right. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And it's growing. And I think it's, this is my opinion, I think it's growing for two reasons. One, the colleges, even the most elite, can't keep up with the pace of software change in business. They've got to get some, somebody else to help them. And two, even when they can do it, like you, you mentioned, 
the Amazon partnerships. They partnered with the community colleges in California. They partner with Northern Virginia Community College and lots of others, but they can't, the colleges can't get the faculty. If I can teach data visualization software, if I can teach Tableau, why wouldn't I be working at a company doing Tableau instead of making $50,000 a year teaching it at a community college? Right. So it really is, you know, such a mutual benefit. The colleges are getting better, better trained people to come in and train their faculty that don't know these skills yet. They're getting people from industry to come in and do it. And the industry is getting the base they need to continue to sell and grow. It's a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the workforce side, on the employer side, there is a lot of talk lately about going skills-based and identifying skills gaps and then, you know, upskilling your workforce, even outskilling folks when they're leaving so that our human capital doesn't fall too far behind. What are some examples of what you're seeing on the enterprise side, folks who are trying to train and keep their workforce job ready and relevant and out ahead of some of the trends that are emerging? What are some examples of, of what's going right in that side of things? So I think promising stuff is really happening. I think you've seen the biggest adoption in the retail sector, right? So the big box stores, you mentioned Amazon before, but you can't have a conversation about employers putting skin in the game and not mention Walmart. Walmart started with dollar a day, the Walmart Academy, and then all of a sudden said, oops, we live in a bubble. We didn't realize that for some people, a dollar a day was more than they could afford without making some major change in their lives. So I, I think what they're doing, and I think a big proponent of this is Guild, you know, the organization, because there were employers before COVID who were offering education as a benefit. And quite frankly, the take-up rate was single digit. In 2019, 7% of people who had education as a benefit took advantage of it. Wow. So Guild comes along. Rachel Carlson is brilliant to think of this. What's the problem? Some people can't afford to front the cost of their education. So pay for the courses up front and wait until they get a see or better to get reimbursed by their company. Mm -hmm. And some companies had really like kinky stuff you had to do. You know, you had to, it only could happen on a, a Tuesday when it was raining and you'd get, you know, you'd get your compensation back. So people didn't know exactly when they were getting it back. They put in the grade, they put it, and they weren't sure whether, when it was coming back. Yeah. And companies got $52.50, $5,250 in tax credit for giving this benefit to their employees. So there's really no downside for a company, but companies couldn't get people to take advantage of it. So now you see, you know, the McDonald's, the Chipotle's, the Chobani's, the food sector, the retail sector, Macy's, Walmart, all these guys jumping on it. Every week you read a new story about now we're going to offer it. Target came on and said, we're not only going to offer it, but we're going to offer a master's degree. You can mm. go all the way through your master's. So it is both an attraction tool to attract talent in this war for talent, but it's a really good retention tool. Who's going to leave if they're in the middle of a certificate program or a degree program? And go to an employer who's not going to pay for that. So I think it's really been, it's really been miraculous. Now, I do want to go back and talk about skill space for a second, because you bring that up and it is, you know, the Mecca, like it's the great shining star of possibilities because yeah. it recognizes talent in people who may not have had the privilege of going to a two or four year college. I, mm -hmm. I love it. But the reason I say it's like the North Star, it's a really long way away 
most employers can't tell you the skills for a specific job title. So if you talk to really good CHROs, human resource professionals at a big company, because they have them, it's really hard for them because for years they said to, to do this job, you need, you know, a bachelor's degree in accounting, or you need a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree in this. It's a new world for them too, as they try to untangle what are the discrete skills in this job that are technical? And then the even, to me, the even hairier part, what are the employability skills? What are the traits that you have to both stick with this job and excel at this job? I, I think we're making some progress. I only say that because I see, you know, when I look at our friends at Opportunity at Work, we're making progress getting what they call, the people they call stars, students who don't have these degrees, but have the skills because they learned them on the job, they're getting better jobs. Mm -hmm. There's job mobility there. So I, I think that's a start, but we have a lot of work to do on this. I think there's a lot of tech companies that are trying to work on looking at a job and dismantling it skill by skill, Right, but so hard. How many times have we talked to employers, you and I both, and they say, I'll know the talent when I see it. I'll know a good fit when I see it. And that means most often I'm hiring somebody who looks like me or has my experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the nature of the job market is changing on both sides. There's the great reshuffle, great resignation. I've heard, I just saw it called the great reset. So you keep, it gets, it has to come, it has to have an R and it's great, but it's a major upheaval driven in part by COVID, but also other stuff's out there in the world around us. The job market is something people are talking a lot about where there's a lot of open jobs, but folks are not necessarily applying for them. Folks that maybe they aren't applying because they aren't interested, but also maybe they aren't applying because they don't know about it or they don't have the skills necessary to fulfill the job. And also there's more awareness that folks may not have all the skills you know, lots of times job descriptions are looking for a perfect, beautiful unicorn when in reality, we all are not quite there, but we can get much further and we can actually do the job. Thoughts on where we are in the, the great reshuffle that we're in the midst of and how to think about getting to the other side, perhaps it was almost like there was a crisis before, and then we were accelerated even further into it through the pandemic. I'm wondering if you're starting to see anything on the other side, where are we headed? And do you have any thoughts on the best way to get there? You know, I think, again, it's really important to, to look at some facts. Before COVID, we had about two and a half million quits, voluntary separations a month. Mm. And now we're having four and a half million in the, in, in these last several months. So what's causing that? Some of what's causing it is really fixable. I don't know why we're not dealing head on with childcare. I mean, if I get offered a job for $12 an hour and it costs me $10 an hour for childcare, I can't afford to work. And I can go through all the machinations of finding somebody to watch my kid for free or working with somebody else who's on different schedules. But you know what? That is really a draconian choice. We should tackle quality, affordable childcare in this country today mm -hmm. because it's ho still holding 900,000 women who were in the workforce 
in February of 2020 out of the workforce in May of 2022. Mm. So childcare is a big issue. I think the other issue is we graduate about 4 million students a year of all ages from two and four year colleges. If you think about the class of 2020 and the class of 2021, they came into a workforce that was stagnant to be complementary, right? right? There weren't opportunities. It was really hard. You couldn't network. We were under that veil of COVID. So they took jobs. Uh, by the way, you're going to hear a bias here, Mike. I believe the American people want to work. I believe the American people see work as a part of their dignity and their own purpose in life. And that's how working nation sees it too. We do mm -hmm. not believe people want to sit home and drink a Diet Coke on their Barco lounger. We think people want to be out there improving their lives and their communities. But how do you, know, how do, you do that when there's no jobs available? So I think, you know, and the numbers bear this out, most of the shuffling has been in entry-level low-wage jobs. Mm -hmm. So people went, took a job, not what they studied in college, and now they're starting to go after it again. In addition, if you think about it, 19, 19 was the last year we had fully operational community colleges on the workforce side. They all shut down in 20. Many of them were still shut down in 2021. So people had to go back and finish, whether it was their welding certificate, their hairdressing hours, their nursing clinicals. So they went back and finished those hours and then got their degree. So a lot of them are now... They were still working, you know, but they were doing something that wasn't their career path. So I think a lot of them are going back. Now, when you ask what's going to happen when this settles a little bit, yeah. will we will we go back, you know, to two and a half million quits a month? I think somewhere between, you know, two and a half and three million is going to be our average moving forward especially if there's more jobs available. What, you know, when I, you mentioned when I was at labor during the great recession, it went under 2 million a month, under 1.5 million for many of the months when I was there of people voluntary quitting. No shock because there was nowhere to go. Right. You were holding on to that rotten job to the bitter end, you know, squeezing everything out of it. But now people have opportunities. Why shouldn't they look for better benefits? Why shouldn't they look for better flexibility that fits their lifestyle? And why shouldn't they look for an employer who's going to believe in them and give them that, that job mobility, that career path that's both a new title and better wages as I learn more? To me, it's a wake-up call. And everybody thinks when I say things like this that I'm talking about big employers. I'm not. I think small employers have a unique ability to track people because they teach you all aspects of a business. You know, I go to work for Citibank. I'm going to learn my little job in my little department and never interface with anybody else. Mm -hmm. I go to a small machining shop, you know, as their communications person that also does relationship with employees, hiring, offboarding, onboarding. I'm going to learn all about that business. That's going to teach me a lot about maybe I want to start my own business. It's going to teach me so much about how to interact with other businesses. So I think this is not, I think this is a great time for small and medium-sized employers because they have different things that they can offer people. Yeah, that makes sense. How about the emerging skills or the emerging domains for folks who are trying to play with their head up? Do you have any advice for either employers or employees or students, folks anywhere in their career path? Are there certain types of skills? Are there certain types of programs? Maybe looking really throughout your life to try to stay ahead of things. 
What do you see on the horizon? Are there certain areas that you think folks maybe should focus on or, or any aspects of of upskilling or keeping yourself ready uh, that you think makes sense for people? Well, I think, first of all, buy into that, that you're never going to stop having to learn new skills. You know, we've heard that lifelong learning so long that it, it kind of doesn't hit us anymore, but there is no way that you're not going to have to add new tools to your toolbox every month, every six months, every year. So take advantage of of those opportunities when they're free, you know, no cost or low cost. But broad areas, I would say number one is digital skills. There is absolutely no job that's not going to be impacted by the digitization that's going on workplaces all over the country. You know, so what does that mean? It doesn't mean everybody should go out and be a coder. It means that everybody should be able to understand, you know, how to look at machines and use them for a work thing. Very simply put, Everybody uses email right now, but learn how to write a professional email. Take one of those free courses so that you know how to spell correctly, that you know how to use spell checker, that you know how to attach a document to an email. That's work skills. Mm -hmm. That's not sending somebody, you know, an are you ready to go out? That's something that's really hardcore work. The other thing I would say is data analytics. I mean, we are living in a world You can't go to the pharmacy or the grocery store without getting coupons that reflect what you bought either today or last week. That idea of customizing things comes from data analytics. And people that are listening, Mike, shouldn't think that this requires a a, a college degree. There are jobs in data analytics right out of high school with a certificate all the way up to a PhD. And the Mm -hmm. beauty is that you can tag on these once you get the job. So you can go from being a data analyst, which is a a fancy way of saying, you know, how to use an an Excel spreadsheet and explain to somebody what it means, all the way up to a data architect, which is that PhD level. Wonderful, rewarding careers. And the last thing I would leave you with is cybersecurity. We certainly have seen so many hacks recently on personal data. And those are the ones that are making the news. This is happening every day in corporate America, in government, in education, in hospitals. It's happening everywhere. So if you go and get some of the certifications that are in cyber, it takes you a long time to get the top certification. You have to be working in the field for five years, but you could start working in the field, you know, and these jobs, the entry level jobs in cyber pay about $50,000 anywhere in the country. That's a pretty good return on investment for a six month certificate. Yeah, absolutely. That's really uh, great advice. So we're getting towards the home stretch here, Jane. This is where we're starting to bring it together. Also, any thoughts around what outside of what we talked about, maybe even outside of the education space or the skill space area, what's capturing your imagination these days? Anything we should be noticing, broader trends in the world around us, this is free forum and interpretive podcasting, anything capturing your imagination these days? I'm really watching remote work. I, I I think I, I like the idea of flexibility. I don't think we're going to have 50% of people working totally from their homes. I don't think that's going to catch on. But I do think one of the things that we have to watch as people are given opportunities to work remotely is that they're not getting that flexibility and losing the idea that they had, you know, real progress on their work site. So put simply... Everywhere I work, Mike, I don't know how you feel about this, but I would see somebody who was really talented and maybe was working as a staff assistant with me on the Hill. I'd see that they were really good and I'd bring them into meetings. 
it wasn't pre-planned like next Tuesday at three o'clock, I need you to come to this meeting with me. Mm -hmm. But I'd walk past them and say things like, you did all the prep work for this meeting. Why don't you come and present it? I just worry that people who are not there are not going to get those opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think it's still really clunky. You know, you've been to things just like I have. People who try to do hybrid conferences where some people are beamed in and some people are there in person. The reality is the people who are there in person get to exchange cards, get to shake hands with the people they're on the panel with and the people who are remote leave the meeting. And I just think we have to be really careful that as somebody is making a decision to be fully remote, they're doing that with their eyes open that they may be leaving some great opportunities for advancement on the table. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff. If folks are curious about Working Nation, and they want to learn more about some of the stuff we just talked about, where should they go? Oh, my goodness. Come to our website, please. WorkingNation.com. See those original articles and the curated articles. Watch some videos and follow us. Stay in touch with us. Tell us your story. Give us your information and tell us what we're doing wrong as well as what we're doing right. What are we missing? Awesome. Jay Oates, the president of Working Nation. Final thoughts as we wrap up here. Just thank you. Really good questions. Really great conversation. The time flew. I hope it flew for the people listening. Awesome. Jay Notes, the president of Working Nation. Check them out, workingnation.com. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast. If you do, please write us a review. Tell your friends. Do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 